two. We'll be uh, looking this morning at uh, Paul's words in chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. Up to this point, I realize we're just popping in uh, right in the middle of a book here. Uh, Up to this point in Corinthians, Paul has been telling the Corinthians that God unites his people in Christ, not in men or not in their leaders, not in Paul, not in Apollos, not in Peter, but actually in Christ himself. Because salvation is not by human wisdom, but by God's wisdom. And God's wisdom is Christ crucified. The Messiah on a cross, dying for our sins. This is God's plan of salvation. So, so Christians confess things like this. Upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. But for some, this message of Christ crucified doesn't sing salvation. It elicits scorn. Some see not in it wisdom, but foolishness. So then, at this point in the book of Corinthians, the the reader um, might be forgiven if he asks the question, well then, Paul, is Christianity stupid? Is there no wisdom in it? And if it's so simple to understand, why doesn't everybody believe it? And if we do believe it, why do we believe it? Paul's answer is because of the Holy Spirit. So our subject then is the Holy Spirit, the person and work, the ministry of the Spirit in our lives. And so let me invite you to stand as we hear God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word. Yet among the mature... We do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also... No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, we bow before you. We ask for your help. We pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that you would teach us wonderful things in this word for your glory, for our good, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. How do you know what you know? And how do you know that you know it? No, this isn't a philosophy class today, but... You know, there are a lot of different answers people would give to that question. Some would say, well, intuition. Others would say reason. Others would say experience. Others would say human authorities. Others would say something else. Is there something else? You know, some people know things by intuition. You know, sometimes we just have a gut instinct, we might say. You know, as a kid, some of us simply uh, did not take the dare to stick our wet tongue on a frozen metal lamppost, it it just didn't feel right. There's something wrong about that, we said to ourselves. There was a kind of intuition about it. Others of us knew by reason not to do that. Eh, Maybe few of us, but some might have said to themselves, well, you know, I'm pretty good in science. And when I was dared to do it, my brain immediately thought through the likelihood of a little bit of water on my tongue freezing when placed against something frozen and the possibility that the ice would adhere not only to the lamppost but also to my tongue and it would be certainly awkward and probably painful to remove myself from that lamppost. And that's, that's knowledge by reason and maybe a bad example for that one. Others would say, you know, I... I I know things by human authority. I mean, mom told me not to do that. And she explained why. And it made sense. And so I didn't. And others would say, no, I learned by experience. (laughs) Don't stick your tongue on a lamppost in the middle of winter. I've done it. It's a terrible thing to do. Well, Paul isn't denying Those faculties, those human abilities, ways of understanding, they're very human, of course. We gain a kind of wisdom about various things through all those means, no doubt. But if that's all Christians have for faith in Christ, upon which we cast our our everlasting soul, then our faith is on shifting sand. Our faith becomes Maybe subject to our gut instinct, but, but who knows if a bad burrito hasn't affected our gut. Or our faith gets led astray by our limited experience or limited and finite knowledge. Or our faith becomes limited to or led astray by the knowledge or error of human authorities, even those who in some ways get it right. Look, if I sometimes can't remember where I put my car keys, why trust my eternal soul to my forgetful brain? And if my wife doesn't know where I put my car keys, why trust my eternal soul to her authority? I mean, do we not have something more solid than any of that? And Paul says, well, yes, we do. Absolutely. We have, he says, the Holy Spirit. And that is solid because it's God himself. And so, 
by way of a long introduction, I realized, Christians, why do you believe what you believe? How do you know what you believe is the truth? How do you know that what has been communicated to you about the truth is the truth? And even then, what persuaded you to believe it? Paul says, the Holy Spirit. And I want you to see that in this passage. The Holy Spirit ministered to you. So we want to think about two things this morning. First, the person of the Holy Spirit, briefly. And then secondly, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Notice in this passage in the first place, the person of the Holy Spirit. Now listen, again, up till now in this book, Paul has not mentioned the Holy Spirit at all, except one time in the verse just before this. Yet now he mentions the Spirit six times explicitly in this passage. The passage is clearly about the Holy Spirit. Now what is it Paul's talking about? Or better, who is Paul talking about? For the Holy Spirit is not an it, but a who. Uh, Not a what, but a he. Not merely power, but a person. He's intelligent. He knows things. Verse 11 says he comprehends the thoughts of God. He communicates. Verse 13, he speaks, uh, we speak, Paul says, in words taught to us by the Spirit. I mean, thinking, knowing, communicating are things a person does. So clearly Paul's not talking about, you know, may the force be with you. That's, That's not what he's describing. He's describing a person who interacts with us person to person. And he's a divine person here. He's omniscient. He knows everything. We say that because, again, everything God knows, the Spirit knows. Verse 11, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. He searches all things, even the depths of God. That language there doesn't mean that the Spirit is ignorant. And then he had to learn something from God that would make the Spirit less than God if he had to get educated. But it means that he penetrates the very being of God. He knows everything God knows in the very depths of God's being. And so Paul uses a human analogy To help us understand that, verse 11, who knows the thoughts of a person except the spirit of that person which is in him? I mean, you get what he's saying. Nobody knows what you're really thinking if you don't open your mouth and tell us. I mean, we might try to read the expression on your face, but you might be a good liar. So also, Paul says, no one can comprehend the thoughts of God except the spirit of God within him. Only God knows what God thinks. And because the Spirit is God, the Spirit knows what God thinks. This is some of what Jesus is getting at in John chapter 14 when he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Jesus says to his disciples, up till now I've been your helper. Now I'm going to go to the Father and and we're going to send another helper helper, another comforter or paraclete, one who comes alongside you, another comforter. And so uh, the point is this, that the spirit is a person and he is a person who interacts with you. And that means just a couple of quick things. On the one hand, how encouraging, how absolutely encouraging for Christians. You have the Holy Spirit, Paul says. He tells that to the Corinthians church. 
which if you know anything about the Corinthians, I mean, they were completely messed up. They were carnal. They were infants in Christ. They had all kinds of just spectacularly gross sins going on amidst the congregation. And Paul says, and he writes to them, you have the Holy Spirit. You who believe in Jesus. You messed up sinners who need a Savior and believe in Jesus to save you. You have the Holy Spirit. So how, how encouraging on the one hand. And then also we might say this, how right it is that we worship the Spirit. We actually praise the Spirit. We give thanks to the Spirit. We we can love and know the Holy Spirit uh, just as we do the Father and the Son. It was right for us to begin our worship with come thou almighty king and speaking about the ancient of days, God the Father, and speaking about Jesus in stanza two and the Holy Spirit in stanza three and finishing with a praise to God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's absolutely right. But, That's the person of the Spirit. The text is mainly about the ministry of the Spirit. So I want you to consider that. What is it the Spirit does for us? Well, what he does is he points away from himself and he points us to Christ. The Spirit, and I'm going to show you this in a minute, but just get get a couple of ideas in your mind, pictures. The Spirit is like a spotlight on a house. Maybe at Christmas you put up lights around your house. My dad used to put up lights on the bushes and trees, but he also used to go about 20 or 30 feet out from the house and put a floodlight out there pointed back at the house in colors red and white and sometimes green. And what was the point of the spotlight? It wasn't for us to stare at the beautiful spotlight embedded in the ground. But it was to display the glory of the house in which we lived. It was to put on display the thing the light was shining on. And so likewise with the Spirit. The job of the Spirit isn't to draw attention to the Spirit, but to point us away from himself and to Christ. And believe me, I appreciate the irony of that in preaching about the Holy Spirit from this passage. But Paul does it to show you that that's what the Spirit ordinarily does. So so one of the ways that helps you is this. If you are looking at Christ and you see him and you trust him, then you know the Spirit has worked in your life. It was the job of the Spirit to do that for you. Or think of it this way, as some other teacher put it, it is as if the Spirit stands behind us throwing light over our shoulder onto Jesus who stands facing us. The Spirit's message to us is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but always look at him and see his glory. Listen to him, hear his word. Go to him and get life. Get to know him and taste and see that the Lord is Good. So the Spirit, we might say, is a celestial matchmaker, a celestial marriage broker, whose role is to bring us and Christ together and ensure that we stay together. And he does that in three ways in this passage. I want to highlight three ways. He does it by way of revelation, he does it by way of inspiration. 
and he does it by way of illumination. Now, you won't see all those words in the passage, but let me, let me tell you what those mean, and then I want you to see it in the text. He does it by way of revelation. He gives us the message, Paul says. For instance, in verses 6 through 11, uh, this is what he's referring to. And at verse 10, you actually see the word reveal. These things God has revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. There's a revealing, a revelation. But then there's inspiration. He gives the words used to communicate the message, verses 12 and 13, particularly verse 13. Paul says this, we, we impart this, the revelation, we impart it, not in words taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. So the Spirit gave us the words, and, and then illumination uh, in verses 14 through 16, and we'll come back to that. We actually need the ministry of the Spirit in us to even comprehend. So let's, let's unpack all that a little bit. Go back to verses 6 through 11 and see the revelation. God, he says, has revealed these things, things to us through the Spirit. What's he talking about? What's been revealed? God's wisdom has been revealed, he says. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. And the mature here is is not distinguishing within the body of Christ those who are immature and those who are mature, as if to say, well, only the mature in the body of Christ get the Spirit, but the immature in the body of Christ don't. We've already talked about that. It's actually distinguishing people of the world who don't believe in Jesus from Christians, all Christians. Christians here he calls mature because we have arrived at the point of life. We've arrived at the telos, at the end, at the very reason for being. You've come to know God through Christ. This is what life is for and redemption is for. And he says we impart wisdom, uh, revelation. It's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. It didn't come from them. It wasn't received by them. I mean, if Herod and Pontius Pilate The other Roman and Jewish leaders had understood they would not have killed Jesus, is what Paul says. The best and the wisest of the world, ruling at the top of the food chain, never knew God's truth, he said, or they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, he says, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, not even what the heart of man has imagined. Well, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So he's saying people are blind and deaf and can't even imagine, and yet God revealed it by the Spirit. It was, notice, verse 7, it was a wisdom that was once secret, but has now been revealed. We impart, he says, a secret and hidden wisdom of God. In other words, he's saying... It's, uh, it's, it was at one time hidden. It was, your translation may say a mystery. Uh, he's not here saying, well, all of this stuff from God was at one time a puzzle too difficult to solve or a riddle nobody could figure out. He doesn't mean it was mysterious in the sense of, you know, it's unknowable and will always be unknowable. It's, you know, throw up our arms. You know, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying it was once hidden, and it has now been revealed. It was once not known, but it has now become known. Christ 
crucified. Nobody could have thought of that. And then God revealed it. Notice that it was pre-planned wisdom. This was, he says, decreed by God beforehand, end of verse 7. It was foreordained. It wasn't planned when things turned out bad and suddenly Jesus was being nailed to a cross. But instead, as the psalmist says, all the days ordained, even for Jesus we might add, all the days ordained for us were written in God's book before one of them came to be. So it wasn't some fly-by-night strategy. It wasn't something God sort of had to make up as he went along. It was planned in the mind of God before the beginning of the world. And what was the goal of this wisdom? End of verse 7. It was, he says, what? Your glory, which God decreed before the ages for our glory, for our benefit. For our enjoyment, God decided that through the crucifixion of the Lord of glory, he would bring many sons and daughters into glory. How do we know that's true? Paul says these things have been revealed to us by the Spirit. Paul says we didn't figure this stuff out on our own. We didn't make it up. We couldn't have imagined it. The Lord of glory Treated like a criminal, the God of power pinned to a cross, the God of holiness treated like a sinner, the God of justice handled unjustly, the God of truth misunderstood, the God of goodness treated wickedly. No, we could have never imagined that. His death bringing us life, his being cursed, freeing us from the curse, his condemnation, meaning for us, no condemnation. His sufferings, making our sufferings but temporary. His pain and sorrow, purchasing for us everlasting happiness. You could have never made this up, Paul says, and I couldn't have. It was revealed by the Spirit. And the apostles received, he says, not the spirit of the world, verse 12, but the spirit who is from God, so that the apostles might understand the things freely given to us by God, so that the apostles could then make that known to us in all the letters of the New Testament. And you and I have received these truths, just as the apostles did, but not in the exact same way. They got it, as Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 26. They got it when Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you, his apostles. I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Spirit, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That was a promise Jesus gave to his apostles, not a promise he gave to every last believer. We have what the apostles were given because they faithfully put it in Scripture and you have access to it, dear friend. And so Paul says, we preach to you the gospel and we got the gospel from God. And so Paul says, it's the Spirit's job to make Christ and him crucified known and to help us know that in him we get everything from God. 
And we have that message revealed to us in this book. Everything God wants you to know about Jesus, you have in this book. Everything God wants you to have about Jesus before you one day see him face to face, you already have by God in this book. He has withheld nothing from you that he thinks you need to know about Jesus. It's all in the book. That's the first point. The Spirit's ministry was revelation. But secondly, and more shortly, the Spirit's ministry is also inspiration. The word doesn't appear in the text, but the idea is there. Paul says, I communicated the revelation to you. And how did I communicate it? Verse 13, in words taught by the Spirit. Okay, he says... The words I used weren't clever words I thought up. They were the words God thought up. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. So you have here the doctrine of inspiration. You have not only what God wants you to know, but you have it in the words God wants you to have it. This is the idea of 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed or breathed out by God. And the idea actually is not so much inspired as expired. God exhales his word, and you have his word. So the Bible isn't some book that the apostles wrote, and then God kind of sprinkled pixie dust on it to make it magical or spiritual or true. It's actually exhaled by God. Peter tells you about this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Speaking of scripture, he says, Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, as they were born along, ferried along by the Holy Spirit. It's actually a word used in the book of Acts to speak of wind in a sail driving a ship exactly where that wind is headed. That's the idea here. The Holy Spirit led the apostles and the prophets and likewise with the Old Testament so that we have what God wants us to have in the words he wants us to have it so that we interpret spiritual truths in spiritual language or we speak spiritual words in spiritual word, with spiritual words. It's a difficult expression to translate, but that's the idea of it. What does this mean for you and me? It means you and I are not waiting on someone who knew someone, 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 who knew Polycarp and and then Ignatius, and who knew the Apostle Paul. You don't have to have somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody to have what God wants. You already have it, all of it, right here in the book. So concerning salvation, we're not left in the condition of being on the back end of a child's game of telephone. Remember that? Not knowing if the story has been corrupted as it has been passed from one to the next to the next. That's not the situation we're in. We go right back to the original words, Paul says. Occasionally, you hear people say, well, you know, Paul taught stuff Jesus never thought of. That's rubbish, friends. It was the job of an apostle to teach exactly what Jesus thought of, and he was given the Spirit and able to do it. And so so they tell it straight. But you will say to me, perhaps, 
What good is an inspired text if it only applies to the Greek and the Hebrew, and we don't have those? All I've got is an English translation, and all I can read is English, you might say to me. You know, Bill Nye and his creation debate, I don't care where you come out on that issue today, that's not the issue. But, but in the midst of this um, debate uh, with the Answers in Genesis guys, Ken Ham, Bill Nye kept throwing out, if you saw that, this often repeated but bogus idea that the Bible has been translated thousands and thousands and thousands of times in all these kinds of languages, such to the point that we can't trust it. Well, that's not, that's not true. Sure, it's been translated many times into many languages. The short answer to that issue is this. We have the Hebrew and Greek. We know what the words are that are translated into English. And we ter- translate directly from those words into English. I don't want to undercomplicate the challenge of that. But Christian and non-Christian scholars alike can tell you what's a good or a bad translation into English. There's usually very little doubt about what a good translation or a bad translation is. Are there bad translations? Well, tragically, yes. Some unqualified people using unorthodox methods have given us really bad translations. Maybe somebody lazy threw it together. Didn't use good principles, and I want to say to you, avoid bad translations of the Bible. But there are a variety of excellent translations of the Bible into the English language. Does every translation give you a perfect rendering in every way? Well, no. Nobody claims that. Sometimes we need to compare multiple excellent translations to see... What is the meaning of the Apostle Paul? Sometimes when there are disputes that cannot be resolved in the English, we are to go back to the Hebrew and Greek and aim to resolve those translations difficulties and the meaning based on the original language. But most of us don't need to do that work. God doesn't think you need to become a Greek and Hebrew scholar in order to properly hear him. And we can praise God for that. God wants you to have a translation. How can I be so dogmatic about that? How can I be so certain? Well, one answer to that is this. We know that at the time of Jesus, there was a translation of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written mainly in Hebrew, and by the time of Jesus, it had been translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And we know that both Jesus and the apostles had access to it, read it, and at times quote from it, quoting from a Greek translation of the original Hebrew. God put his stamp of approval already in the Bible on Bible translation. How kind he is. You don't have to learn Hebrew and Greek to understand his word and the story of redemption. And how loving he is that he sent Jesus to redeem people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. And he wants them to have his word in their language. Well, you say to me, but why then doesn't everybody believe it? God gave the story, the revelation, the reality of the events, as well as the words by which to describe the events. And we have the whole book. 
Why doesn't everybody believe it? Here's why. Verse 14, even if we have a Bible brought down to us by the inspiration of the Spirit, verse 14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolish to him, and he can't understand them because they're spiritually appraised. What's Paul saying? He's saying you need a further work of the Spirit of God. You need to be, we might put it, illuminated. That's the way the theologians put it. Why do some people receive this message and believe? It is because the Spirit of God is at work in them to see and believe. There is a natural weakness and incapacity in what he calls a natural man. That's just a man without the Spirit of God. A person without the Spirit, he says, does not accept the message of the gospel. Why? He's, it's folly to him, he says. He thinks it's nuts. He thinks it's crazy that the God of the universe, who's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, became a human being, a baby, and then got killed by his own creatures, and that's somehow supposed to help us. That's stupid, is what the world thinks. The natural man, of course, thinks that. It's folly. But more than that, he says, it's not just that he doesn't believe it, it's that he cannot believe it. He cannot understand it. And the reason he cannot understand it, he says, is he does not have the Spirit of God. These things are spiritually discerned. They are discerned by means of the Holy Spirit. So left to ourselves, you and I are blind, deaf, and uninterested. But the spiritual man understands, he says. And so what is Paul doing here? He is ripping away our pride. There is no special skill or insight on our part that brought us to faith. It was all due to the Holy Spirit. You know, some people, I'm told, enjoy watching the Olympic sport curling. You, uh, you might be one of them. I don't know. Maybe you know all the virtues of curling. But the fact is, the rest of us aren't going to like it, no matter how well you describe it, unless there's some kind of internal change in in us. Uh, There are people who don't like Mozart and Bach, if you can believe it. And again, the reason is within themselves, and they're going to have to be changed from within. And likewise, there are people who can't stand the Bible It doesn't impress them at all. And they can't stand Jesus. And he doesn't impress them at all. But when the Spirit comes, friends, he doesn't change the Bible. He changes us. He gives us eyes to see, ears to hear. He makes us able and willing to believe. That's why Jesus became believable to you. That's why Jesus seems beautiful to you. That's why you embrace Jesus. And so Paul says, look what the Spirit of God has done for us from giving us the revelation through the apostles to giving us the the language of the revelation in the language God wanted us to have it and making it all the way home until it finds its home in our heart. Therefore, four quick points of application. Number one, 
We glory in no man. We glory in the Lord. That actually is a recurrent theme across chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 of 1 Corinthians. We didn't get the gospel from even the finest preacher we ever heard or the purest church that ever taught it. We got the gospel from God himself, and he drove it home to our hearts by the Spirit. And so we boast in no man and in no higher authority or church. And we don't boast in reason or experience or gut instinct. We boast in the Lord. But secondly, we read this word to get the language of the faith. It is God's word which is powerful, not man's. It is God's opinion which matters, not man's. It's God's formulations ultimately that persuade you. Not even our or man's best systematic formulations, however helpful they can be in leading us to the truth. But it was God's word working on us. So I want to say to you, don't ever just passively sit back listening to a preacher tell you what you must believe without consulting the Bible to see if what he is saying is true to the Bible. And then get it from God in that way. So we read this word to get the language of the faith. Thirdly, you and I are always dependent upon the spirit of God. There is never a time when we can do this on our own and rightly handle the word of God. And so if you are wrestling, as I hope on occasion you do wrestle with what does God's word teach, what does Trinity grace teach, what does a Presbyterian denomination teach, what do Protestants teach, what do Eastern Orthodox and Catholics teach, and what should I believe? If you ever wrestle with that, friends, then what we should say is this. Come back to this word and cry out, Oh Lord, give me understanding. Because you are dealing with a person who interacts with you in this word. He can give you that and answer that prayer. But finally, friends, if you long for others to enjoy the good news of Christ crucified so that we could be forgiven. If you find that to be sweet to your soul, but you have family or friends whose hearts are walled up, seemingly impenetrable by that message, well, you have a resource they cannot imagine. The Spirit of God can go where your best words could never get. The Spirit of God can work, call upon him to pierce hard hearts with the good news like sunshine pierces darkness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bless you for the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory crucified for us. We thank you for the ministry of the Spirit that spotlights him. Lead our souls to rest in him. In his name we pray. Amen.